Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. I am so thankful that you're here this morning and that you're here to worship with us. If you have your Bibles today, I wanna ask you to take them and open them with me to the New Testament book of Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter five for this morning's message and for our time together, Ephesians chapter five. If you don't have a Bible with you today or don't have it on your smartphone, the words will be here on the screen in just a moment. I do wanna encourage you as we are looking at what God is doing this today, especially in the early service, our attendance was very high and as you can look around the second service. Our attendance is very high. We are anticipating having three services on Easter Sunday, but I'm just going to commit to you right now. We may have to do that before then, okay? So I would ask you to pray with us and pray about that. So uh, yeah, for those of you who are clapping, we will probably ask you to come to the eight o'clock service, okay? (laughs) So uh, we would encourage you to be a part of what God is doing. Hey, as you're turning in your Bibles, let me just take a brief moment to make you aware of a resource. If you are an active part of the community group ministry of Crosslink, or you are planning to be a part of the community groups this semester, we have a free resource that we would like to give to you. It's a book by Tom Rayner. It's available for free in the coffee cafe as you go to leave. If we run out, because we had a lot of people in the early service, we will get more this week. They can be here in just a few days, but please make sure you stop by and get one. Every single one of us, I invite you to get plugged into what God is doing and be in a place where you can grow and be encouraged and be challenged in the context of a community group. We, as, as Sarah Beth mentioned a moment ago, we're highlighting 24 groups today. As of today, we have over 30 groups here at Crosslink and we have 10 brand new groups starting this very week. So there's no reason not to get involved. There's plenty of opportunity and literally the groups go as far south as Stanton and as far north as Broadway and we're praying about others in the future. So please make sure you get connected, grab a book on your way out and we will be grateful uh, that you did. Ephesians chapter five. This morning, we begin a brand new sermon series here at Crosslink, one that I believe has dramatic impact on what God is going to be doing in and through the life of Crosslink in the coming days. Usually at the start of the year, we will take some time, anywhere from four to eight weeks, and we will focus on an area that as pastors we've recognized maybe a place of, of growth that we need, a place where God has wanted to further us beyond where we are. And, and we've seen in the past three years, God do some pretty cool things in that process. Last year, for example, we were very convicted about calling us as a body of Christ to be a people of prayer. And so there was a series called Invited to Ask. Many of you remember that, where we were reminded about God's call to come boldly into his presence and to ask specific things of him, to have a, a prayer life. And out of that, God did several things in our individual lives, but even in the church, God established a prayer ministry. Every Sunday morning now, not only do I pray with the deacons, not only do our prayer team gather here to pray with people at the end of the services, but while we are meeting, right now as I am speaking, there's a team of people in the other building and they are praying specifically for this hour together. They're praying for God to work and move. That all started out of that series a year ago. The year before that, the conviction was that God was calling us to serve him. And we focused a sermon series on spiritual gifts, how God has equipped every believer with a gift, at least one, for the purpose of edifying the body of Christ. And through that, there were several of our ministry teams that were uh, strengthened and there were some new teams even established. God worked through that. 
The year before that, we focused on generosity and how God has graced us to give and God turned several things around in the life of the church through that time frame and God is still molding us to be the generous church that he wants us to be. Today, we begin a new series and a new focus with the emphasis on that of commitment. Whether you realize it or not, whether you wanna hear it or not, the fact of the matter is, as a born-again believer, as a follower of Christ, God has called us to a place of commitment. And I believe God wants us to hear that loud and clear in his word today and in the coming weeks. Now, as we consider that idea of commitment, I wanna ask you two questions to consider this morning. Two areas of commitment specifically that I want you to ask yourself and examine and truly consider this morning. The first question is this. Are you personally are you committed to the Lord Jesus Christ? In your life, are you devoted to Jesus Christ? You have believed in Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're living your life in a way to follow him, to honor him, to please him. Are you committed to the Lord Jesus Christ? My hope and prayer this morning, frankly, is that every single one of you can answer absolutely by the grace of God. Yes, I'm committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. My life is devoted to him. If you're here this morning and you have any doubts about that, any reservations about that, if you can't answer that with clarity, I will give you, hopefully by the end of this message, an opportunity, an explanation of how you can commit your life to Christ, how you can know with certainty that you are following Jesus today. Are you committed to the Lord Jesus Christ? But the second question really takes it a step further than that. For those of you who can say, yes, absolutely, Pastor Matthew, by God's grace, my life, I'm committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, I have a second question for you, and that is this. Are you committed to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you committed to the Lord first and foremost? And secondly, are you committed to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? I realized this morning in a series called, Called to Commit, that we live in a day, frankly, where very few people like to be committed to anything, right? We like to keep our options open. That's just how it is. We don't like to commit to a job. We don't like to commit to a location, a, a marriage, a, a friendship, a team, a, a school, or even to a church. And there's lots of reasons that's the case. Perhaps we are afraid to commit because something better might come along along the way. We wanna keep our options open. Sometimes we have to commit, frankly, because we've been hurt by something in the past and we would rather be guarded and, and secure and protect ourselves, so we just don't wanna commit. Perhaps we don't commit because we like the leisure of being able to come and go without any strings attached. Sometimes we fail to commit because we justify in our mind, oh, this is a temporary season of life. I'm not gonna be here very long anyway. Sometimes we don't commit because, frankly, we don't see the importance of it at all. My hope and prayer over the next six weeks or however long God would lead is that God would bring us out of a place of, of, of excuse and out of a place of convenience and call us to a place of commitment in regards to our relationship with him and our relationship to his church. Unfortunately, this morning, many people view the church as a spiritual smorgasbord. Now, what does that mean? I have to confess to you, growing up in Alabama, I did not know that the word smorgasbord was literally a word, okay? I thought the word smorgasbord growing up meant just a, something of variety, something of just you know, random craziness. It sounded like a made-up word to me. That all changed for me a little over a year ago. 
A little over a year ago, I was talking with a friend and he was asking me about some of our plans and I told him that my family and I were going to Lancaster, Pennsylvania to take our kids to the Sight and Sound Theater. Anybody ever been to the Sight and Sound Theater? If you've never been, consider this an advertisement. You should go, all right? It's incredible, as you see, at least at that time, we saw the, a play and a musical display the life of Christ. It was absolutely amazing. And this friend of mine who has family in Lancaster said, Pastor Matthew, if you are taking your family to Sight and Sound Theater, promise me that you will do one thing. I said, well, I'm not making any promises, but what are you recommending? He said, you have to go eat at the Shady Maple Smorgasbord. Now, anybody been to the Shady Maple? Okay, very good. I got a few witnesses here. Okay. So I asked the question, what in the world is a smorgasbord? To which he kindly explained, it's a buffet on steroids. Okay, that's what it is. He said, literally, he said, Pastor Matthew, this place will have more food than you've ever seen in your life. I know how much you love to eat. You got to go. Okay. And so I made a promise. I'll tell you what, my wife and I, our family, we will go. So we made plans. We went to the Sight and Sound Theater one evening. We stayed in a hotel that night. And the very next morning, we made the plan. We went to the Shady Maple Smorgasbord for breakfast. Now, as God is my witness, and I have to confess, when I walked into that restaurant, I have never seen so much food in all of my life. I mean, literally, there was a buffet here, here, here. It was all stretched out. It seemed like it was longer than a football field. They walked us past the buffets. They walked us to our table. We sat down and literally, you could see the look in our kids' face. They were just like, wow, you know, we've never seen anything like this before. And I said, guys, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pray and then we're gonna go. And so we prayed together and I said, all right, literally, I said, ready, set, go. (laughs) And my kids and my family literally invaded that buffet. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, literally, in one area, there were your made-to-order omelets. In another area, there was fresh-made French toast. And then there's another area, you could get pancakes made to order with any kind of toppings your heart desired. It was amazing. Then you turn around to the other areas, and there was was a smoothie bar. And then there were all these fresh pastries, and there there were all sorts of muffins, and then there was fresh fruit. And then I turned the corner, and I heard the angels of heaven singing. It was the meat bar. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just telling you, like, I've never seen so much bacon in all my life. There were pork chops on the thing. There was like 10 different types of sausage. And I was like, even so, come Lord Jesus. You know, like, let me finish my meal first, but then come Lord Jesus. That'd be great. I mean, like, it was, I've never seen food like this in all of my life. And so, I mean, so literally I'm, I'm learning. There was, then I began to walk and I realized they had different ethnicities represented. There was a Mexican dish with eggs and spices. I have no idea what was in it. It was amazing. It was like the best thing I've ever eaten in my life kind of thing. I mean, this stuff was so good. And so I'm trying this and that. I learned of a new thing called Scrapple. Oh, yeah. It's like potted meat with syrup. I mean, it was like awesome. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying this and I'm trying that. Oh, okay. I, I'm gonna go back for more of this. I got as much as I wanted. And I, of course, I turned my nose at a few things, right? It was all made to order fit for me. Awesome. I ate, we had a great time. I was stuffed, couldn't breathe for three days, but it was awesome. So good. He said, Pastor Matthew, what in the world does that have to do with anything related to the church. Here's what it has to do with. In our American culture, we have created a spiritual smorgasbord mentality 
where we go into the church, where we look at the church, frankly, and we begin to think that it should be made to order for me. I'll take a little bit of this and I'll take a little bit of that. Oh, I like a whole lot more of this, but I don't want anything to do with this. And the reality is as we do that, we begin to create a culture in which frankly the church centers around us or at least we think that it should. So when we go into the church, we're not looking about what the church is doing. We're not looking about whether or not it's bringing glory and honor to God. We're looking at it on the basis of our comforts, our preferences, our choices. We look at it from the context of how is this benefiting me? How is this bringing pleasure to me? So we enter the church asking questions like, do they serve what I like? How good is it? Is it my style? Is it my preference? How good is the worship leader? Do I like his voice or his style? How long does the pastor preach? How OCD is the executive pastor? (laughs) Do they have something for my kids? Is their student ministry cool enough and yet biblical enough? Do they have this? Do they have that? Are the servers good? Do they do their job well? Without even realizing it, we create a culture in which we are living our life like the church is a spiritual smorgasbord. Please don't get me wrong. I enjoyed the smorgasbord experience. And the next time I'm in Pennsylvania, I have every intention of stopping again. But living my life that way would not only be unhealthy, it would eventually be deadly. Living my life that way would not be appropriate. Certainly living my Christian life that way would not bring glory and honor to him. After all, does the church really exist for me or does it exist for the glory of God? Is it really about my desires and my wants or is it truly about seeking the Lord and his will and his direction and what he is calling us to do? I believe God is calling us to a place away from a spiritual smorgasbord and instead to a place of devotion and commitment to him. So how do we begin? Where do we begin a series on this focus of commitment? I believe we begin this series by looking at the very example of Jesus Christ himself. So in Ephesians chapter five, if you're physically able, I wanna ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word here this morning. And I'm preaching to you very, very clearly on the subject, the church and its master. The church and its master. How do we live as a church today? How as a believer does God call us to commit? I think we see the example in Christ. Now in Ephesians chapter five, Paul is giving us a, an illustration of a relationship between a husband and a wife, but make no mistake about it. He's only giving that as an illustration. What he's talking about is Christ and his care for the church. Listen to what he says. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. And all the ladies said, amen. Just as Christ also, what did he do? He loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but listen to the statement, he nourishes 
and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but listen to this. I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the freedom and the opportunity that we have to read your word. We understand that your word is the word of life. So God, speak words of life into our lives today that we would be radically transformed and changed. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us a will to humble ourselves and respond and obey you however you lead us today? May it all be for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you, you may be seated. The church and its master. The passage that we've read today is extremely popular, frankly, because of the illustration that's given about husbands and wives. In fact, I would guess to you today that in being in ministry for a long time, about every other wedding that I've ever been to or even officiated somewhere, Ephesians chapter five is referenced in the wedding ceremony. But what God is ultimately speaking about in this is not simply the marriage relationship, but the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, I ask you today to think about for a moment, what is the church? Oftentimes, when people think about the church, you say, hey, tell me about your church. We initially began to think about a building. We began to think about a location. We began to think about a facilities or a meeting space. But believe it or not, that is not at all what the church really is. The word church in the New Testament literally means an assembly of called out ones. It's an assembly of people who have been called out. We've been called out of darkness into light. It's those who've been called out of sin into the gift of salvation. In other words, the very moment you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, literally you're forgiven and cleansed. You're called out of the old you and you're called into the new man that God is creating you to be. In other words, the church, it's not about the building, thank God. It's about the people. We've been called out of darkness into light. Therefore, it doesn't matter if we're meeting at 4904 South Valley Pike or if we're renting a facility somewhere else or if we take over a football stadium somewhere else. It doesn't matter. It's not about the location. It's the people who have believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That word church in the New Testament has two primary references, two ways that it's used and to describe. And I'll describe them this way. The first way that the word church is described is what I'll call the big C, larger church. The big C, the larger church, is often referred to throughout culture as the universal church because the big C, larger church, literally is made up of every believer from every generation, from every nation, from every denomination. Every single person who has ever professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ makes up the larger church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means the very moment you believed in Christ, whether that was a second ago or 10 years ago or however long ago, the moment you believe in Christ, you're forgiven and saved and you are made a part of the larger church. That's a wonderful truth. That's a glorious privilege. But here's the reality of that. That larger church that represents every believer from every generation of every nation is not visible to us. In other words, you can't see the larger church with your eyes. You can't grasp it, if you will, with your hands. Now, you can get glimpses of that. 
If we were to get in a plane right now and fly to the Ukraine and meet with Brother Alex and Open Doors Ministries, we would meet numerous of our brothers and sisters in Christ in another nation that maybe we never met before. But the fact of the matter is, as we gathered together, we'd get a glimpse, but we wouldn't even see every believer in that city, much less in the country of Ukraine. We could get in another plane and we could fly down to Nicaragua and be there in Managua and then work in Somatillo and some of the villages and we would get a glimpse of that larger church. The simple fact of the matter is this, we are not omnipresent. We can't be in every place at every time beholding the good and evil as only God can. We can't identify every brother and sister in Christ here on this earth at any given moment. Not only that, here's another reality. Many of the larger church are already in heaven. Both of my grandfathers who loved Jesus and served Jesus and followed Jesus really throughout most of their life, they are now in heaven with the Lord. And literally, visibly, I can't see them right now. And so we're thankful for the larger church, but we can't clearly identify all of the larger church. There's the larger church, and then second aspect of that is the Bible tells us there's a little c. It's the local church. It's that local body of believers. It's that local group who covenant together in mission, discipleship, and fellowship. Different than the larger church, the local church can be clearly seen and identified through our mutual commitment to the Lord and to one another. There are some then who will argue, well, it's not that important to be a part of a local church. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, really, I'm already a part of the church. I believed in Jesus. But the simple reality is those who make that argument show that they do not understand the entire context of the New Testament. Did you know that in the New Testament, the word church is used 114 times? Of those 114 times, over 90 of those times, it's used in direct reference to a local church. In other words, I would say it this way. There is no way that a believer can fulfill God's commands concerning the larger church without a direct connection to a local church. In fact, all of Paul's letters, they are either written to a local church or they're written to a pastor or to a group who are serving a local church. In other words, the local church matters to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is God's way for us to fulfill his commands concerning the larger church itself. And I believe we see that in Ephesians chapter five. Paul pins these words to a local church in the city of Ephesus in reference to the larger church and what Christ has done for her. And I believe what God is showing us through Ephesians chapter five is not only a sense of appreciation of what Christ has done, but he's also showing us if Christ would do this for the larger church, then should we not also do similar for the local church? This morning, I believe we're called to commit. Well, how do we do that? We look to our master. So if you're ready to learn about that, would you say, "Uh uh-huh? I'm glad half of you are. That's awesome. Okay. Three things I want you to consider this morning as we consider the church and its master. First and foremost, God is calling us first to recognize the position of Christ in the church. The position of Christ in the church. If we are going to answer God's call, we got to first start with a recognition of who Jesus is and the position that he has in the church. The Bible says in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. You see all throughout the New Testament that another name for the church here is the body of Christ. We see this in Romans chapter 12. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We see it alluded to in Ephesians chapter four. What God is showing us here in Ephesians chapter five is that the church is a body. 
Now we understand in the body that a body has all kinds of different parts. We have different organs, if you will. We have different uh, digits, fingers and toes, different members of our body. But in that picture of a body, we understand that while a body has many parts, they all contribute together to the function of the whole. In the context of a body, the church, the Bible says, that Jesus has a very strategic place in that body. He's not merely the hand, he's not merely the feet, he's not even an internal organ. The Bible says Jesus is the head. That is to say that he's the leader. Jesus is the ruler. Jesus is the director. He's the commander in chief, so to speak. The idea literally within our body is that our body is able to do certain things because the brain is sending messages and it's sending specific uh, uh, indications for us to grasp, for us to step and us to do. Someone oftentimes maybe who has some sort of, a, of an issue maybe with their brain, maybe there's a, a tumor, maybe there's some sort of function, it will begin to manifest itself not first in the head but in their extremities. Why? Because there's something that's creating a friction. There's something that's creating a barrier. When the Bible says that Jesus is the head, it's saying he is the leader, he is the director. Here's how the Bible says it in Ephesians chapter one. It says this, God placed all things under his feet. And appointed him to be the head over what? Over everything for the church. Over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Colossians 1, 17 and 18 says it this way. Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. He also that is the head of the body, the church. It is by Jesus that the whole thing holds together. It is by Jesus that the church functions in unity. It is by Jesus that the church accomplishes its mission. It's by the headship of Jesus that we love each other like we ought to, that we forgive each other like we ought to. It's by Jesus being the head that we're unified to each other. It's by Jesus being the head that we are the hands and feet of Jesus, loving people around us, taking the gospel to the world. It's when Jesus is the head that the church functions perfectly as God intends. So, Pastor, I don't see that in a lot of churches today. It might be that churches have taken control and Christ is no longer the head. Here's the reality. When Jesus is the head, the body functions as it ought. Please make no mistake about it. Jesus is the leader. You say, Pastor, well, who's the, who's the leader here at Crossing? Aren't, aren't you the pastor? Aren't you the overseer? Aren't you this and that? Please understand loud and clear. I am grateful for God's calling upon my life. I don't deserve it, and I'm unworthy above all. I am so grateful for that. But please make me be known loud and clear. There is one leader at Crosslink Community Church, and his name is Jesus Christ. It's the bottom line. I'm humbled to serve, but make no mistake about it. I and our pastoral team, we are under shepherds. When we're seeking to make decisions, we're seeking the Lord. Where do we go when we need guidance? Where do we go when we need direction? Do we just lean upon our understanding? Do, do we just literally, do we listen to the loudest voice, to the popular opinion? Do we depend upon the current trend or the pressure from the government? Do we listen to the disgruntled member, to the, to the biggest giver? Do we give into the secular culture? The answer is no. There's only one who's worthy of being sought. There's only one who's worthy of being followed. There's only one who has the wisdom and the authority to command and to instruct and to guide and to show us the path and to show us the steps. And his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. And yet in our human nature, we rebel against that, don't we? We do. 
I remember even with kids, I, I've coached recreational soccer for years and years and years, and, and I love teaching kids and, 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 and getting them to meet parents, and it's become an incredible opportunity for relationships and ministry. But in essence, when I have these younger kids, we'll start off with all sorts of dribbling games, and one of the dribbling games of soccer is we'll play follow the leader. Everybody wants to be the leader. Nobody wants to be in the middle. Nobody wants to be in the back. Everybody wants to be the leader. And they'll fuss and they'll complain and all these different things about it. And the same truth is often true even in the context of the church. I want to be the leader. I want to be that. I want that. I want this. When the reality is it all boils down to who is really the head. And the bottom line is Jesus is the head of the church. And while he is the head of the church, we can have complete assurance that the church is going to be just fine. The question is, are we following him? Are we surrendered to his authority and to his lordship in our lives, and in the church. But the second thing I want you to see, and I really want to park it here for a little bit, I don't want you to just see the position of Christ in the church. It's easy for us to mentally say, yep, Christ is the head, got it, understand, okay, good. But the second thing I want you to consider then is Christ and his provision for the church. His provision for the church. Now remember, Paul is giving us here an illustration of a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. One of the primary roles of a husband, one of the primary callings, it's a part of our DNA within us, is to be a provider for our family. Now, that does not mean that you have to make a certain amount of money. It doesn't mean that you have to make more than your spouse or anything like that. But it's written within the DNA of a man that God has equipped us and it burdens us with a sense of calling to provide for our family. Well, in the same way, Paul now says, but now let me tell you what Christ has done for the church. Like a husband will care for his wife and for his family and seek to minister to them, let me tell you what Jesus has done for the church. And I think he spells it out in five ways. I don't have a lot of time this morning, so I'm gonna talk quickly. I hope you can listen quickly, okay? If you got questions afterwards, I'm gonna be in the lobby as long as we need to be. Our prayer team would love to talk to you about it or please call and set up a meeting this week. We'd love to talk with you further about these things. But five things that Jesus has done that has provided for us in an incredible way. The first thing I want you to consider is this, and that is this, the compassion that Jesus showed to the church. The compassion that Jesus showed to the church. Frankly, it would be almost easy to overlook this point. But the fact is that this simple point is the basis for everything else that Paul is going to say. What is that fact? He tells us in verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Now, Men, I don't have to convince you of this, but let me just remind you that every wife wants to know that she's loved. She doesn't want to doubt that. She doesn't want to have hesitations about that or anything else. She wants to know that she is loved. The fact of the matter is the Bible tells us, listen, Paul is saying emphatically, I want you to know this. I don't want you to doubt it. I don't want you to question it. I want you to know with absolute certainty, Jesus Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5, 2 says it this way, that we are to walk in love as Christ did what? As Christ also loved you. Now, this love that Jesus is describing here in Ephesians chapter 5, it's not necessarily speaking of passion. It's not just a brotherly love, oh, I care about you. This is agape love. This is describing the sacrificial, unconditional, faithful love of Christ. That's what Christ has towards the church. It is this same type of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that tells us that this agape love, this pure, sacrificial, faithful love, it is patient, it is kind, it is not jealous, it is not arrogant, 
It does not act inappropriately. It isn't selfish. It isn't provoked. It doesn't hold on to offenses. It rejoices in the truth. And this type of love never fails. This agape, sacrificial, unconditional, faithful love, it always puts the needs of others before oneself. Didn't Jesus do that? Didn't Jesus model that for us in the fact that he wasn't looking out for his will? He wasn't looking out for his wants? He wasn't saying, what's in it for me? No, the Bible says that when he came to this world, he came to serve rather than to be served. Jesus showed this type of sacrificial love towards the church. And it's the basis for everything else that we see. The compassion that he showed the church is one thing, but secondly, consider this. I want you to consider the cost that Jesus paid for the church. The cost that he paid for the church. It doesn't just say, and Christ loved the church, hallelujah, amen. Though that should have been enough. Here's what he says. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what Jesus did. It literally means that Jesus surrendered himself. He gave himself up as a sacrifice and as an offering for us. He willingly surrendered it all. I think of that for just a moment. And I cannot help but to think even of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus, the Bible says, he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and and the Bible says that he's in such intense agony that he is sweating like great drops of blood and, and he understands the weight of the moment. He understands the burden that he's about to carry and he cries out in Matthew 26, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But in the very next breath, He surrendered himself. He gave himself. He showed that it was never about him, but it was about the glory of the Father and the good of the church. And here's what he said. He said, nevertheless, yet not as I will, but your will be done. It's not about me, Father. It's not about my want. It's not even about my rights or my privilege. It's not about my position. It's not about what I deserve. It's about your glory and the good of the church. That's what he did. Here's how Philippians 2 says it. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and for emphasis adds this, even death on a cross. In other words, when he didn't have to, when he didn't deserve it, in that moment, literally of agony, he still willingly surrendered. He emptied himself and he willingly laid down his life for the sins of the world. How can we fathom that? How can we grasp the weight that he bore and the cost that he paid for you and for me? Why would anybody do that? Can you imagine the sight as they take Jesus literally and they strip him of his garments and they begin to beat him with a cat of nine tails. They begin to punch him in the face. They begin to spit upon him. They take that crown of thorns and shove it down into his brow. They literally take him as he carries that crossbar and he takes it towards Golgotha and they get him at the top of the place and they literally stretch out his arms as far as they'll go and they drive those spikes right into his hands and then they put him on that cross and they raise him up and it falls down into that hole as his whole body is Why would he do that? 
He did that because he loves you. And he loves you and he loves me. He did that because he loved the church and he gave himself up for her. Think of the sacrifice that Christ gave, the cost that he paid, and it, it moves me, changes me. Third thing we see about Christ and his provision for the church is we see that not only does he love us, praise God, not only did he give his life on the cross, but third, I want you to consider the cleansing that he gave to the church. Listen, Jesus didn't just love you. He didn't just die for you. At the very moment you believe in Christ, your Lord and Savior, he saves you from the wrath of God and he cleans you. Listen to this statement, verse 26. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Think of that for a moment. The moment you believe in Jesus, an incredible mercy he saves us from our sin, rescues us from the wrath of God that we deserved, but that's not all. All the sin that we've committed, all the past that's been done, all the shame we've brought upon ourselves, all the pain, all of it, the Bible says he cleanses us. Isaiah the prophet said it this way, though your sins were as red as scarlet, they are washed whiter than snow. That's what the Lord does. First John chapter one, verses seven through nine even assures us, here's what it says. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Somebody say all sin. All sin. If we say that we've no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, how do we get that? We get that through the word of God. The scripture says here, we're cleansed by the washing of water with the word. We don't like to hear it. We don't like to have that conviction. But it's through the word of God that God convicts us. God shows us where we've done wrong. God shows us where we've sinned. It's through the word of God as we humble ourselves and receive it instead of hardening our hearts against it. It's in the, through that context that we repent of our sin and we turn from those things and we are cleansed. Jesus said it this way in John 15, verse three, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. In other words, they received the word by faith and they responded in obedience. It's like the gentleman this past week who texted me and said, Pastor Matthew, you preached this past Sunday the message that I never wanted to hear, but it was the message I needed the most and I've been set free. Not about my message, it was the word of God. And it was uncomfortable and he didn't like it, but because the word of God was received by faith, it brought him to conviction and it brought him to a place of repentance and he was cleansed and set free. Here's how he says it in verse 26. Having been cleansed by the washing of the water of the word, what did he, what did he do? At the moment of salvation, the Bible says you are sanctified. It literally means that you're set apart. You're set apart from the old and you're set apart now to the Lord. You're set apart from the sin that you were once in. Now you're set apart to live out the gift of salvation. You once were living for yourself, but now you're living for the Lord. You've been set apart. Literally, the illustration of that being set apart, there's no better illustration than the one that Paul gives us. It's the picture of marriage. June 21st, 2003, I was at a church in Montgomery, Alabama. I was at the altar of a church where the most beautiful bride the world had ever seen came walking down the aisle towards me. And in that ceremony, we literally were set apart 
it literally in our vows, we said, forsaking all others for you alone, I will love, honor, and cherish till death do us part. In that moment, there was a setting apart from everyone else and a setting apart to one another. What God is saying is at the moment of salvation, you're set apart from the past and you're set apart to God. He is cleansing you today. The fourth thing I want you to see this morning is this, as you think about the provision of Christ, not only did Jesus love us and give himself for us, not only is he cleansing us, sanctifying us, but Jesus has also committed himself to us. Think about the commitment that Christ shows to the church. Now, notice the statement in verse 26. The Bible says, you were cleansed by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27, he now tells us something in the future that's going to happen. So that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Wait, wait, wait a second, help me understand. The Bible's talking about a past cleansing, but a future cleansing, a past sanctification and a future sanctification. What in the world is this talking about? Let me illustrate this for just a moment. When the Bible speaks of being sanctified and being made into the likeness of Christ, it speaks of it in the past, in the present, and in the future. Let me illustrate that. If you believed in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior one second ago, one second ago in the past, you were forgiven, you were cleansed, and you were sanctified. For me, that happened in 1986. In 1986, I professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I surrendered to him and believed in him for salvation. And in that moment, he forgave me, cleansed me, and sanctified me. The relationship began, so to speak. But guess what? He didn't leave me at the altar. Does that make sense? Like since then, guess what God's been doing? God's been working in my life to mold me, to shape me. God's been working in my life to reveal himself to me. Does that mean I'm imperfect? Absolutely not. In fact, one of the evidences that God is molding me and shaping me in the image of his son is that when I do sin and when I do things that are wrong, guess what? He doesn't let me be content about it. In fact, when I do something that's wrong, when I say something that I shouldn't, when I get upset with a church member like I shouldn't, when I eat too much food at the Shady Maple, you know what he does? He convicts me. He convicts me and he brings me to a place where I realize, Father, I'm sorry, I, I don't wanna live this way. I don't wanna displease you, I wanna honor you. And so as God does that, God begins to mold me and shape me. It's a process of making me more and more like Christ. But here's the reality, I'm not perfect today and I'm not gonna be this side of heaven. But one day, the Bible says, Jesus is going to come again and the entire church will be raptured up to meet the Lord in glory. And when that happens, then and only then will we be presented without spot or without wrinkle or without blemish or any single thing. Literally, according to 1 John chapter three, it is then that we will be made like him because we will see him as he is. In other words, Christ has committed himself to the church that he continues to mold and to shape for his glory. Somebody say, well, say to me, well, Pastor Matthew, you know, I'll, I'm just looking for the perfect church. You know, when I find the perfect church, I'm gonna commit and I'm gonna get involved and I'm gonna be a part of it and do what God calls me to be when I find the perfect church. Here's the reality. You will not find a perfect church this side of heaven. Amen. And the moment you do, you should leave it because by your very presence in the building, you made it imperfect. <laughs> Seriously. It's like the young man that says, Pastor Matthew, you know what? I know I've dated a bunch of girls, you know. I know that's true, that's true. You know, I have a lot of relationships, a lot of friendships, true. You know, when I find the perfect woman, then I'm gonna get married. I'm looking at him like, dude, you're gonna be one lonely dude the rest of your life, Okay. I'm just telling you, you're not gonna find a perfect woman. And I assure you, she's not gonna find a perfect man in you. That's just not how it works. There's only one perfect person who's ever lived and his name is Jesus. 
So there may be a church here or there that does something better. There may be a church that has this specific thing going and, and they might be more effective in areas and there's ways that we can all learn and grow. But here's the reality. We will not be perfect until we are literally in the very presence of the Lord Jesus, fully made in his image and us not stained by the brokenness of this world. Final thing I want you to consider about Christ and his provision is this. I want you to consider the care that Jesus gives to the church. Verses 28 through 30. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own body. He who, own, he who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. The care that Christ gives to the church. It's interesting to me that God speaks through Paul to give us this illustration about how a man takes care of his flesh. Now, speaking here of mankind, really, but even in the context of a, of a man specifically, the fact is we all understand that our, our flesh has certain needs, certain desires, certain real needs, like, like the need for food. How many of you a while ago, you're hearing about the shady maple and the bacon bar and all that fun stuff, we're getting a little bit hungry, okay? I confess, my stomach's been growling ever since, okay? Like, <laughs> just how it goes. Fact of the matter is, most of us experience the need for food. And we get hungry. Truth be told, I don't know how your body is, but my body is about every two hours after I, after I eat, my body says, hey, you're hungry again. <laughs> Yesterday afternoon, I was at home. We had some downtime. We were supposed to have basketball games, but they were canceled because of the supposed weather. And I, I love our meteorologist, but anyway. <laughs> I mean, all seriousness, we had some downtime. We got home, I ate lunch at 11.45. By 1.45, I'm like, man, what's for dinner? And I could have in that moment have disciplined myself and said, you know what, we'll have dinner in like three or four hours. It's gonna be okay. But why would I do that when my favorite snacks are sitting in the pantry 10 yards away? You know what I mean? I was hungry. So I went to the pantry, I got my favorite snack and I enjoyed. And I don't feel remotely guilty about it. <laughs> what? There was a need, right? I mean, seriously, most of us could go without eating a meal. Most of us, without any health complications, we could probably go a whole 24-hour period without eating. I know you don't think it's possible, but we could. It would not really, I mean, my, my physique could benefit from that problem. Like, it wouldn't hurt us. To go, but here's the reality. We, most of us would not do that. Why? Because we nourish our flesh. We don't just do that with food. We, we go get a haircut occasionally. Hopefully we brush our teeth on a regular basis, you know, like we nourish our flesh. We sleep. But here's the deal. We don't just nourish our flesh, we cherish it. We don't just eat anything. We eat good food, the stuff we like. We don't just get any haircut. Like we'll pay good money for a good haircut. Like we, we want to cherish our flesh. Why? Because it's a value to us. It's something that's important. We shave our beard or maybe we should. I don't know. Like we take care of ourselves. That's the point. The point is just as we regularly take care of ourselves, the needs that we have, the Bible says that Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. It means that far beyond what we think or feel or whatever else, here's the reality. Christ knows the needs of the church. He knows your needs. He knows the needs of the body of Christ. He knows them all. He hears our prayers. He's right here with us and he's working and he's moving all things together for his glory and even for our good because he nourishes and he cherishes the church. 
Just as we would seek to to give preferential treatment in some ways to to getting good food or to getting that good haircut or whatever the case would be, the fact of the matter is Jesus so values the church that he's concerned about us. He's concerned about our needs. He's concerned about what's going on in our lives. He's meeting here with us. He's working in us according to his omniscient plan, assuring us of his presence, guiding us in his word, comforting us in our afflictions, and even giving us joy for the journey. He's nourishing and cherishing the church. That's what Jesus does. Brings to a final statement and we'll be done. I want you to consider the priority of the church. I gotta say this quickly, but I do want us to hear it loud and clear. The message today is not so much about, wow, Jesus is the head, that's true. Uh, Frankly, I I hope that you're not just wowed by the fact of all that Jesus has done for the church. I mean, it certainly should bring us to a place of of gratitude, but it's more than just gratitude. It should lead us to a place of response. In light of what Christ has done for the larger church, how should that impact and influence my life today? Remember I asked you the question earlier, are you committed to Christ and are you committed to his church? I believe the example of Christ brings us to three specific actions. I call them priorities because they should be a priority in every believer's life. And here's what they are. Number one, it's very simple. Love Jesus. Love Jesus. Don't talk about Jesus like he's just some historical figure. Don't talk about Jesus like you've been reading off Wikipedia. Like, seriously, love Jesus. Have a relationship with him that is real and sincere, a personal relationship. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, that we love because he first loved us. I ask you this morning, do you love Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Here's the simple reality. Many people profess, certainly in a Bible Belt community, oh yes, I love Jesus. Oh yes, I've heard the messages of Jesus. But here's the reality. If your love for Jesus is all about you, your needs, your happiness, your whatever, then it's not really Jesus that you love. If your love for Jesus is, is genuine, it will be demonstrated by putting his will, his call, and his desires above your own. Love Jesus. Secondly, submit to Jesus. Here's the priority. Don't just love him, but submit to him. Literally the word that was used here in verse 22, be subject. It literally means to submit. It means to yield oneself to the will of another. In fact, the context of the verb means it's done voluntarily. What God is calling us to recognize is if Jesus is truly the Lord, then because we love him, we submit to his lordship. We submit to his rule. In other words, my life's not about Matthew Kirkland anymore. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I think. It's about what the Lord wants in my life. So yield to him, submit to him. And finally, the priority of the church, love Jesus, submit to Jesus. And finally, Follow Jesus' example. Follow Jesus' example. The love Jesus has for the church is expressed so clearly in Ephesians chapter 5. Think of it for a moment. He loves the church so much that he gave himself sacrificially for her, that he's cleansing the church through the ministry of the word. He's committed himself to the church to continue to work in us, to make us blameless. He continually cares for us and seeks to meet the needs of the church. This is Christ's actions towards the church. But here's the question. If Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, would willingly give himself completely, for the glory of God and for the good of the church, 
then why should we be willing to give anything less? If Jesus would willingly sacrifice his life, giving it up for us, why then as a follower of Christ, would I be willing to give anything less than what the Lord gave for me? Really, is there a sacrifice or a cost that's too great to pay? The fact is that I believe God is calling us that our affections and our attitude and our actions toward the local church should model Christ's affection, attitude, and actions towards the larger church itself. Just as Christ loved the church, we have a calling to love the church. Just as Christ sacrificially gave himself, God's calling us to a place of sacrifices. Just as Christ cleansed the church through the washing of water with the word, guess what? We don't have the power to cleanse in and of ourselves, but we do have the power and we have the instruction to minister to one another through the word of God. Colossians chapter three, verse 16 reminds us, remember that statement last week, we're to put off the old and put on the new? The very next verse in Colossians chapter three, 16 says it this way. So let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, singing with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. The whole point of that scripture is simply reminding us that the way we put off the old and put on the new is surrendering to the Lord, but we have a responsibility to that as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we encourage one another, as we love one another, as we pray for one another, and as we instruct one another in the word of God. Just as Jesus committed and sacrificed and cleansed God has given us a calling. Just as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, it should be our ambition to do the same in the local church. So Pastor Matthew, what are you saying? I'm saying this morning that God doesn't want us to be on the fence trying to keep one in, one leg in, and one leg out. I'm, I'm here, but not really. I'm here when it's convenient. I'm here when it's easy. No, God has called us to a place of commitment. If you're here this morning and you have a hard time answering that first question, I want you to know there is hope, there is peace, and there can be joy. If you're here today and you ask to answer that question, am I committed to Christ? If you can't answer that with certainty, I want you to know this morning you can. You commit your life to Christ by believing in Jesus, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that he rose again just like the scripture says. As you believe in Christ, that Jesus is the Lord over all, and you surrender your life to him, friend, you can know without a doubt that you've been forgiven, you've been saved, you've been cleansed, and that your life is devoted to Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. This morning, I hope, before you leave here today, if you get anything from my message, I hope it's that, that you can know without a doubt that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. But this morning, I think there are probably many of us who would honestly say, you know, by, by God's grace, Pastor, yes, I'm committed to Christ, I'm following him. But there are a lot of us who struggle with that second question. Am I committed to his church? And my hope and prayer today is that God will bring us to a place where we're not gonna be content with complacency. Where we're gonna be willing to look at Christ and his example before us and say, because Christ is my Lord, and I want my life to bring glory to God and good to his church, I'm willing to commit to him. And this morning, my hope and prayer over the, this week, over the next several weeks, is that God will call us to a place of commitment. And as he does, we'll be willing to say, yes, Lord. 
Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.